Today's passage comes from Acts 21, uh, 37 to 22, 29. It just feels more natural for me to read out of this than as opposed to keep looking up at the screen. But here we go, friends. As Paul is about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicily, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Sicily, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there, and bringing them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there, came to me, standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned you and I beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Last part, folks. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he, Paul, he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune 
He said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray, friends. God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the worship. We thank you first and foremost and ultimately for you, Jesus. We thank you that when we worship, when we praise, when we tithe, when we fellowship, when we read your word and ask you, Holy Spirit, to expound upon it, we do not do these things in vain. We do these things because there are God who has called us to it, but there's our God who meets us in it. Lord, uh, Holy Spirit, be with us. Work in us and through us for the good of others, but for the glory of your name, Jesus. We ask and pray for these things. Amen. Amen. Friends, you may be seated. Whew. All that reading does call for water. <laughs> How Kristen does it every week, I simply do not know. But friends, for the final time this morning, good morning. And we are glad you are here, whether you are in person or online. If you're a new or newer person, welcome. If you are a regular attender, welcome back. And if you are a member, welcome home. You find that this morning we are in the second part of a two-part sermon in a larger series. So one of those like Russian nesting dolls, a part and a part and a part. But when we zoom all the way back out, we've been talking about the mission of the Spirit. Going through the book of Acts to see really simply this one point. That the Holy Spirit has been up to then is still the same thing the Holy Spirit is up to now. So, for those of you who may not have been here last week or may have forgotten, both of which is okay, let me recap for you very briefly where we went last week. Because without it, none of what you just heard me read or are going to hear me say is going to make much sense. Last week, Paul was imprisoned unjustly. And it started for us a conversation about this idea of injustice, this byproduct of sin. And we asked ourselves this question, what does God want us to believe about injustice? Because if we don't believe the right thing about injustice, we're not going to tackle it the way that God has called us to. In this sense, right belief is going to fuel right action. And we looked at two main ideas. One in Romans 12, which Paul wrote before he got arrested. Always remember that, especially for today. He wrote that God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord that sometimes we end up believing this lie that God is indifferent to the suffering in the world, that God's plan is not good or he's not going to deal with it. But in this very simple sentence, God wants to remind us of something. I have not forgotten. I'm not letting it go by the wayside. I will take care of business because that is what's good and just. And that's a good thing, friends, because you know who's the only truly good and just person? God. So we need him to handle that business, which only he can handle. But that left us asking this question, centered around this idea, do we take God seriously? Because if I take God as seriously as God takes himself, I will never lose my confidence in him. God never expects to fail, so why do we expect him to fail? Especially when it comes to this idea of injustice, we need God to be everything he says he is, and more that we probably haven't understood about him yet. We need him to be the full breadth and width and height and depth of the man that we know as Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we are hopeless. But friends, We are not without hope, especially when it comes to this idea of injustice, as we're going to see today. So where are we going? 
We looked at what does God want us to believe about injustice, and now we are going to look at what does God call us to do about injustice. I said it last week, and I'll say it again. God does not expect us to sit idly on our hands. But what he calls us to do may be packaged in a way that some of you might be caught off guard with, and that's okay, but it's good. Because, friends, for the final time this morning, I want to remind you, what the Holy Spirit was doing then is what he's doing now. If you ever are curious as to why we keep saying that, this comes from places like Malachi 3.6, where the Lord says, I, the Lord, do not change. We're not just saying this because it's a nice, quickie soundbite that you can just put out there. It's because God has revealed himself to be one who does not change. So what God was up to then, as we read and are going to dive back into, God is up to now. Amen? Amen. Let's do this. So, this story, this part two of this story, starts off in a really scary way, in my opinion. Paul first decides that he wants to address the mob, who, if you remember, was trying to kill him. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a situation where there were a group of people who wanted to end your life. I hope and pray that never does. But I would think the first reaction you have is not to jump back into the fight. You're probably like, I'm out. Paul doesn't even want to fight. He just wants to talk to them. Okay, crazy, sure. I, my opinion, right? Okay, maybe not the best idea. Maybe something that maybe we personally do. But when you read crazy stuff like this in the Bible, you should ask yourself this question. Why? Paul knows what he's doing, as we're going to see later on. Paul isn't just doing this by accident. There's a purpose. There's a reason. There's an intent behind it. And that should catch our attention, right? So he starts to address the crowd. And there's this funny little mishap that happens right away where, if you remember, the crowd was full of misinformation about Paul. They accused him of defiling the temple. And they accused him of defamating or going against what their ancestors had taught them in the tradition of Judaism, both of which were unfounded and both of which were not true. But we see this misinformation, this injustice, come up against Paul again when the tribune, who's like, you speak Greek? Oh, I thought you were just the leader of this rebel insurrection. Paul gets mistaken for an Egyptian who is literally leading a band of assassins. It's something like straight out of a video game or a movie, to be quite honest. The Romans had, their hard, had a hard time corralling this group of assassins. One, because there was a lot of them. 4,000 men trained to kill is a pretty serious deal. But two, they were trying to whip up the Jews to revolt against Rome. So the tribune thought, he caught a big fish. Here's a guy who has been actively working against Rome. And Paul's like, dude, you're not even close. <laughs> I don't know who that guy is. My name is Paul. <laughs> I'm from Tarsus. I'm in Sicily. I'm from in the area of Sicily. I'm a Jew. Okay, can I talk to them? These are my people. It's implicit. I'm a Jew. They're Jews. Can I talk to them? The tribune is want to let him do that. If they can settle their own matters without him having to get involved, easier for him. So he lets him. Paul switches to Hebrew, and he starts addressing the crowd. And what we see him do is basically share his testimony. If you think back way, way many months ago, we read through Acts 8. We read through Acts 9 which is where those stories that Paul is referencing happen. When he's on the way to Damascus, when he encounters Jesus, when he signs off on Stephen's death, that's Acts 8. He is sharing his testimony. But friends, why? He's standing in front of a mob. Picture this. He's standing in front of a mob 
who want to kill him. And now he decides to start talking about how Jesus met him? There are a hundred different plays he could have been using here. There are a hundred different things he could have used to get out of this. One of which we actually see in the passage. But he doesn't. He starts sharing his testimony. And this is where we really start to hone in. On what does God call us to do about injustice? There are some highlights from his testimony that I want you to catch. Because they matter. One, Paul says he's educated by this guy named Gamaliel. Gamaliel is a well-respected authority in their time. He's the creme de la creme. It's like if he got taught by Ivy League professors, that who is who Paul mentored under, or mentored under, excuse me. So when Paul is reiterating that to the Jews, he's letting them know, I know my stuff. I didn't just hang around on the edges. I, this isn't something I just fell into. He's not saying this boastfully, but he's they would have picked up, I know this stuff better than you do. I was trained by Gamaliel. Have you ever wondered why when you read the story of Paul in Acts, he's always in synagogue after synagogue after synagogue? He can just walk in and people ask him to teach? Why? You wouldn't just let a random person walk in here and decide to let them teach. That's normally not how things like that go. But Paul, no matter where he went, his reputation preceded him because of who he was taught by. History bears us witness that Gamaliel is a rabbi that the Talmud, which is what uh, Jewish people still ascribe to today, references Gamaliel. We're talking a guy who went down in history that even though we don't know a lot about, his fingerprints are all over. And Paul can say, I was taught by that man. So Paul knows what he's talking about, but he's also building a bridge with his audience. Hey, this isn't you against me. We're actually on the same side here. But not only that, he highlights for them how Paul himself persecuted the followers of the way. At this point in history, the disciples of Jesus Christ are called followers of the way. Right? It comes from what Jesus says in John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Paul himself says, I persecuted those people. Let me put that into language that helps us understand for the passage today. I was the source of injustice, Paul says. I was the one who looked upon people and justified by my religious beliefs, beat them, imprisoned them, killed them in error. Paul is very familiar with what it's like to be the person who is doling out the injustice. He gets it because that was him. So when the crowd wants to kill him, he gets it. Not that it's good. Not that he says it's okay, but he gets it because he was on the other side of that equation not too long ago. But not only that, Paul highlights for them that who meets him but Jesus. You ever catch that when you read Acts 9 or when you read this passage? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus. I am the one who we're persecuting. Jesus was already in heaven when Paul was walking the earth and doing what he was doing. How could Paul be persecuting Jesus? Because Paul is persecuting his people. Another reminder that God is not indifferent or afar from this idea of injustice. An affront to his people is an affront to God himself. And Paul spells out in his testimony that Jesus offers him relationship purpose and forgiveness from sins. Let me read that part for you again. It's when Ananias is speaking. 
And Ananias says this, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, relationship, to see the righteous one and to hear from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard, purpose. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name, forgiveness of sins. This should sound very familiar. Do you know why? Because it can be encapsulated, talked about, delivered, and internalized in one very simple word. Friends, what Paul is sharing through his testimony about who he was, what he has done, and what has changed in his life because of Jesus, we call the gospel. It's the good news, right? Let me read it for you in a different sense. This is Jesus in John 17, praying what we call the high priestly prayer. Jesus is talking to God in front of his apostles, and he says this, as you, Father, sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. That's purpose. You skip down to verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's relationship. Straight out of the mouth of Jesus. Relationship. What about Matthew 9? where Jesus heals the paralytic man. When he heals him, here's the part of the story we, we tend to forget. He heals him, and that's great and crazy, but not right away. The first thing Jesus says to the paralytic in Matthew 9 says, your sins are forgiven. The man's still crippled. He can't walk, but your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees go nuts. Who is this man who thinks he can forgive sins? Only God can do that. That's the point. So then he says, what is harder to do? Forgive a man for his sins? Or to heal him. And the Pharisees are stuck. Because only God should be able to do both. Jesus has already said, I can forgive sins. But then he says, so that you would believe, he looks at the paralytic, get up your mat, walk. And he does. Forgiveness of sins. Friends, this is the gospel. It is what Paul says in Romans 1.16, is the power unto salvation. It is the thing that God orchestrates in our lives to show us that all that is will not be. And all that was broken will be restored. It is a thing that God uses in our lives to give us hope and strength and renewal and passion and all of the fruit of the Spirit and all of the armor of God and all those beautiful passages that we love to dwell on and memorize. It is all those things that get bound up in this one simple idea of the good news. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that this Jesus would come and die and not stay dead so that everything can change. But I thought we were talking about injustice. What does the gospel have anything to do with injustice? That may seem like a really silly question, but it's a question worth asking. Because that's what we see in our passage. Paul is confronted by injustice, and he decides the only way to confront it is the gospel. Right? Look at this. In the face of Paul's cruelty, Jesus confronts him and offers him the gospel. So Paul does likewise. In the face of his unjust situation at the hands of this mob, Paul confronts them and offers them the gospel. Nothing less. Now for some of us right away, this is all fine and dandy until you get to that C word. Confronts. <gasps> no, 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 no. Con confrontation can sometimes get a bad rap in our society. But if you remove the negative stigma away from it, confrontation is simply the idea of there's a thing that needs to be said and you need to hear it. 
It doesn't mean rah, 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 I'm going to beat you down until you agree. It doesn't mean I get to say it any which way I want at any which point I want, but it simply means there's a thing that needs to be said, and I will say it. That's what Jesus does when he meets Paul on the Damascus Road. And that's what Paul realizes is his opportunity. As he is in the middle of suffering injustice, don't forget that. This isn't a thing that Paul is trying to heal his wounds of, process his trauma and pain, you know, write about it to his counselor. Now, I'm not knocking those things. Those things are good and healthy. We need to do that. But Paul is suffering his injustice in real time. And he decides to share about the gospel. Why? Why? Why doesn't Paul take the out that he shows us was very much on the table at the end of the passage? Paul only decides to reveal that he's a Roman citizen and, and this is not the due process for a Roman citizen when he's away from the mob. Did you catch that? He could have just said to the tribune right there on the steps of the temple, I'm a Roman citizen and I can prove it. Get me away from these crazy people. And they would have said, yes, sir, and they would have taken him. Did you catch that? Why does Paul wait to reveal that peace? He could have done it in front of the mob, but he chooses not to because he knows it's the power of the gospel that is going to confront injustice in our lives and in the world. Why? There are two things about injustice that we didn't discuss last week. Or one, I'm sorry. One we did discuss, but one I need to add on. And I call them horrors. Because injustice is not the same we simply deal with. Injustice is not just an ever-present reality in our world because of sin. As I hoped you picked up on last week, injustice is horrible. It's evil. It is grotesque. It is the, uh, my vocabulary is failing me. It's awful, friends. It's awful. And all its shapes and forms and sizes, God's not okay with any of it. So let us not downplay the evil that we are talking about when we talk about this idea of injustice. There are two horrors to injustice. One, we looked at last week, that this is not how God has ordained his creation to be treated we looked at this idea that the justice of man says everyone should be treated fairly and reasonably. And God says that's not enough. Everyone should be treated the way I, their creator, treats them. That is a much different standard. But injustice, when it happens, also ingrains a spiritual lie into those who are suffering it. Let me explain. And I'll use the two examples that I used last week. Human trafficking and food insecurity. When someone is human trafficked, their lives fall into shambles for the very reality that somebody has decided to use them as an object, right? Your life is not your own. Your life belongs to me. I get to do with you whatever you want, whatever I want. That is the evil of human trafficking. That is not what God says of his people. Friends, when that happens to you, even once, what that embeds in your very soul is this lie that somehow I am inferior to the person who has trafficked me. Think about that, for example. Why do people who actually get rescued from human trafficking have to go through so much counseling and care and prayer and healing? Because deep, deep down inside, the pain they're suffering is not just what happened to their body and to their psyche, it's to their very soul. Their soul has latched on to a lie that they were never meant to believe that they are somehow less that God had two orders of creation, mankind and then them. That's from the pit of hell. What about food insecurity? It's the same idea. 
when we do not take Jesus' word seriously to love our neighbors as ourselves and provide for them what they need, what we are somehow telling people is, this piece of food that I have that I could share but decide not to is because it's better spent on me than it is on you. Say that to somebody's face one time and see how they react. They would be aghast, to say the least. And if they're violent, they'll punch you. Right? Like, it even sounds disgusting coming out of my own mouth because it's true. It is disgusting. But that is what ends up happening when injustice is prevalent. The world is marred. It takes on deeper and deeper scars because of what is running rampant, but also people's souls take on deeper and deeper scars because of what is running rampant. And that's not okay. Friends, the justice of mankind tries to approximate. It tries to get really close to number one. It doesn't even touch number two. You know what does? The gospel. The gospel. Because when Jesus tells us, for example, when he tells Peter, feed my sheep. We know he's not literally meaning feed my sheep. Jesus doesn't have any physical sheep. Jesus means his people. When P Jesus tells Peter, feed my sheep, he's saying, instruct them in all that I have taught you. It's the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Feed them. Feed them my word. Feed them my bread. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Feed them me. Why? Because that's going to right the wrong of the world, and it's going to right the wrongs of their hearts. It is the gospel, friends, and only the gospel that even comes close to dealing with this idea of injustice. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that has the power to confront both horrors of injustice at once. Every effort of mankind without it falls flat in truly dealing with injustice. And then we get to the end of the passage. Where we realize this gospel of Jesus is offensive to those who want no part in it. Which seems kind of silly and a bit confusing. The gospel is the power of, of God unto salvation, Romans 1.16. Why would the world find that offensive? Well, because the world doesn't want to do things God's way. The world does not want to buy into this idea that we should do things God's way. And so we talked about last week how food insecurity could not be an issue in our lifetime. But it will be because the people who have the money simply don't want to share it. That's not a condemnation on the rich. Hear me, it really isn't. It's simply speaking to the idea that sin runs deep, which is why the cross had to run deeper. Right? But we see this idea of the offensiveness of the gospel come up again in this passage. And we need to be aware of that. When we decide to take a stand in the name of Jesus for the cause of Jesus and tackle injustice the way Jesus says we should with a full presentation of the gospel, it is going to be offensive. People are not going to like that. Peter tells us this. I know the font is small. Sorry, I tried to fit it on one screen, but I'll read it for you. For it stands in scripture. This is 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, I believe. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected, he's talking about Jesus, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the central piece of the foundation, without which nothing will stand, and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. It paints this picture of an idea that if you were running along a path, 
Some people in this room like to run. Most of you maybe don't. That's okay, but picture this idea. You're running along a path, and there's a giant boulder in your way, and you don't see it. Maybe you're just tuned into your music, or you're looking somewhere else, but you don't see the boulder. And someone comes alongside you the entire time saying, hey, hey, there's a boulder in your way. You need to, you know, course correct, otherwise you're going to drop into it. You go, what? What do you say? What? Or you just, no, shh, go away, I'm running. It's offensive. You know what's eventually going to happen? You stumble on the boulder. That's the idea here. The gospel presents the reality of what is true in our world, but what is true of what Jesus has done. For those who do not want to give it way, it becomes a stumbling block. It becomes a thing that is putrid to them, offensive. I don't want to hear this because it calls me to live my life in a different way that I don't want to. And justice is really sweet on the ones who get to proliferate it. And justice is really sweet in the hands of the ones who have all the power to get whatever they want as in using injustice as their means. Someone who's corrupt and wicked and given into this idea that the world is my plaything usually has a hard time throwing that off because all the power is theirs. Everything they could ever want is at the fingertips of their reach. Why does it matter if it costs them a few people, a few countries? What does it matter? It's offensive to them. And this is what we see happen when Paul mentions the Gentiles. The common phrase says, the devil is in the details. I hate that phrase. God is in the details. Here's why that matters. When you read this passage we read this morning, we see that when Paul starts speaking to them in Hebrew, they are quiet. They want to pay attention. When he starts sharing about his story, Gamaliel and the persecution, they are quiet. They want to listen. At what part do they decide to stop listening? At what part do they decide to say, away with this man. His life is not worth having on the earth. Did you catch that? Your existence should not be, is what they say to Paul. You should be eradicated from history as we know it. I've never felt that way about somebody. That strong, strong emotion that they are feeling towards Paul. When do they say that out loud? When he mentions the Gentiles. When in his story, Jesus confirms to him, you are going to go bring me and my word and my message of hope to the Gentiles. That's when they go, ah, we knew it. We knew it. You're a, no, you're not one of us. You don't get it, Paul. You're a backstabber. You belong to them. Away with you. Friends, there's a pretty taboo word for what that actually was. It's called racism. That's not an indictment on the Jews. Honestly not. People have been racist to each other for millennia, longer than we've been alive, and unfortunately, until Jesus comes back, longer than after we all leave the earth. But that's what's happening in that, mass, in that passage. Paul is saying to them, here is the hope of our ancestors. He has come. He has changed everything. And they say, hold on, it's for the Gentiles too? No, it can't be. You got it wrong, Paul. I know you were trained by Gamaliel, but you're wrong. You're just wrong. That's injustice. They decided to treat a group of people different than the way God treats them. When all you have to do is go back and read through the Old Testament, and you can see that even all the way back before Israel was a country, God tells his people through Moses, when the foreigner comes into your midst, don't treat him like a foreigner. When the sojourner, remember that? When the sojourner comes into your midst, don't treat him like a sojourner. Because you yourself once was, and look at how I treated you. Before they were even Jews, God said to them, all of these people are going to matter in due time. Because I made them all. Again, friends, this is not an indictment on Judaism. 
but it is the simple reality that Paul understood the end of what his ancestors taught and believed. And it was Jesus, and it was the gospel, and he saw it to its end, and they want no part. And that's how our passage ends. Kind of on an annoying cliffhanger, to be quite honest. Paul gets out of it, but he's still arrested. And then what happens? We'll talk about that next week. But this week, we need to go back to this idea. What does God call us to do about injustice? To meet it by presenting the gospel. To meet it by presenting the gospel. Nothing short, nothing less. Meet it by presenting the gospel. What does that mean? Well, how do we do that? Last week, during our On Mission Together part of our announcements, our Mercy Ministry Director, Barbara Hunter, came up and she shared with you all this stuff about our Mercy Ministry. Keep that in mind as I read this passage again from Romans 12, which we talked about last week. Rejoice in hope, Paul says. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Paul is a Christian writing to Christians. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Repay no one for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Do you see how he was honorable in confronting the crowd and giving them the gospel? If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Believe it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will pay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here's how we can say this. Do not overcome injustice by injustice, but overcome injustice with the gospel. Because that is what evil and good is and how we are talking about it today. So I mentioned mercy ministry. How do we do that? How do we live this out? How do we show hospitality, contribute to the needs, be constant in prayer, repay not evil with evil but with good? How do we do that? How do we take this idea of the gospel more than just Jesus saved me and my soul and I actually live it out so that others may be saved too? Not just in heaven but now. How does that look like? I literally copy and pasted this from our website. So for those of you who like to take notes or you're curious and you want to go back afterwards and see where we get some of this information, all of which I'm about to show you is literally on our website, which is kind of the point. Barbara talked about last week this idea of meal trains, this ministry of presence, this connections, the Souls Food, food Pantry, taking care of our local neighbors and taking care of the body that we call All Souls Community Church, right? Tending to the needs of the saints and with hospitality. That continues with the idea of helping hands, prayer support and support beyond tithing, which goes to like grocery gift cards or very specific projects. Our mercy ministry is tied to this idea that justice is not simply something we do. Justice is who we are. And we must live that out because that is baked into the gospel that has saved us and keeps saving us. But that's just local. What about global? Next week in our On Mission Together part of our announcements, you're going to hear someone talk about our global missions. Here's just one part of our global missions that I'll share with you this morning. Again, this is on the website. Go to ministries and you can see it. Mercy and global missions. It's right there. Commit to Paul is an organization that works among sexually exploited girls, female sex workers, traffic girls, and their children, providing services that address their physical, social, economic, educational, and spiritual needs. Did you think we were talking about sex trafficking for no random reason? I could give you 100 different examples of injustice. But this is something that is near and dear in our heart for our church. 
their work is a holistic ministry and coordination and partnership with the local church. Commit also provides advocacy for land ownership, public service, human rights, justice, and dignity of the body and other, uh, or baby, excuse me, and other marginalized communities. This is right on our website, along with a link to the latest newsletter that we got from them. Don't just think about justice. Don't just be curious about how we do it. It's right here. Go do it. Go be the people that God has given the gift and the power of the gospel to and see how that changes the world around us for the glory of God's name. Friends, I'm going to keep going because I have one more slide, but I hope, I hope you realize if you walk out of here choosing to do nothing, why were you here? Honestly, that's not meant to be offensive. It's the reality. It's the reality that the gospel charges us and gives us all that we need to see this world be made right again. What about in our discipleship ministries? How does this idea of justice? If your preteen or teenager spends any amount of time in our youth ministry, they're going to hear this phrase a billion times. It's one of my favorite phrases to say. Just because it's normal doesn't mean it's okay. You know what's normal in their lives? Bullying, shaming, uh, things like anorexia, bulimia, drug use, uh, sexual proliferation. Those are things that are normal in teenage home nowadays. But just because it's normal doesn't mean it's okay. Just because it's normal, just because it's common, just because it happens on a consistent basis does not mean it's okay. Friends, why am I putting that up there? We say this so often because that first idea of injustice, the horror of not being treated the way God says you should be treated, comes up in the lives of our preteens and teenagers. But that second one, that spiritual lie, oh man, I deal with that every week. This idea of because this, the way this person treated me or thought about me or acted towards me somehow ingrains in them this thing that is not of Jesus. And we have to remind them that just because it's normal doesn't mean it's okay. But what about our kids, our, our elementary age, and all the way to our newborns? This is this idea that the Bible teaches us that our children's ministry director, Geraldine, really champions. And it comes out of Deuteronomy 6. It is the, the Shemo, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one, right? If you've ever heard that passage before. And this idea, where in Deuteronomy 6, God charges God's people to impress upon their children who God is, why he matters, and what he has done for them, and what he will do for them. He doesn't just say the community should do that, although he says that later. His first command, after he establishes that he is Yahweh to God's people, in this passage, is parents, of which I am one. Parents, when you wake up, talk about me with your kids. When you go to sleep, talk about me with your kids. Tell them the stories of what I have done in here and in here and around Share with them this God who you know, love, and follow. Why? So that they can experience and taste firsthand who this God is. Friends, I'm about to say something to the parents in this room. Again, this includes me. And if you find it offensive, I do sincerely apologize, but it has to be said. When you decide not to take into your hands the spiritual responsibility of raising your kids, you have committed an unjust act. You have. Because God is the one who says, not me, not Pastor Will. God is the one who says, parents, this is your responsibility. You don't do it alone. 
You do it with us, which is why people like me exist, and why people like Geraldine exist, and why we have a staff, and why we have volunteers. You're not meant to do it alone, but you are meant to do it. You are meant to do it. We cannot let the parents, I'm sorry, we cannot let the instructors of our children be people who do not know Jesus. Because guess where they will lead them to? Anything but Jesus. That's not okay. That's unjust. Because the people who are not going to lead them to Jesus are the people who are going to treat them in a way that does not align with what Jesus says about them. That's why that's unjust. Friends, to confront injustice, we must present the gospel, the whole of the gospel. It's not just Jesus loves you and Jesus made you. Jesus says you have worth. Jesus died for your sins. That is certainly a part of it. Do not ever diminish that. But it also is I will show you through my actions what Jesus says about you is true. I will confront the very unjust and spiritual lies that proliferate in your life by the ways I will be obedient to what God says. You have no idea how spiritually powerful it is to give someone who is hungry a meal and to say, you get this meal because Jesus loves you and because Jesus says you deserve this meal. That goes more than just filling their belly. That goes to healing their soul. Do you understand that when the gospel asks us to do these good works, like Paul says in Ephesians, it's not just that so we can just be busy doing good works. There's spiritual power behind those good works to see the rights made or to see the wrongs made right. We call it the gospel. It is the Holy Spirit working in God's people to make his kingdom grow. To see those lost be found. To see those broken made whole. To see those running come home. How, friends? The, the question is not will you. It's not. Whether you ultimately decide is between you, your spouse, your family, and your God. Honestly. But I'm not going to give you the out by asking you, will you take up a stand against injustice with the 400 different ways I told you to? No. That's a cop out, in my opinion. My question for you is how? How? How will you, in this place, in your life, and in the places that you frequent, and the connections that you have, both here, regionally, and globally. Will you do what God is asking you to do? Will you follow Paul, who is following Jesus, when he says, when the evil of the world comes my way, I will not bow down to it. I will look injustice in the face and says, have you heard about my Jesus? Let's pray. God, we thank you that, again, you are not a God who is on the sidelines. You are not a God who is indifferent. You are not a God who doesn't have something to say and something to do about the evils in our world. God, we thank you for the story of Paul and that even when the situation seemed crazy and did not call for it, he said, I know what I must do. And I will share the story of my Jesus, both in word and in deed. God, would you make us a people fashioned after you? Holy Spirit, would you change the parts in us, inside and outside, that we would heed this call seriously? Not just because we should, but because we get to. But because you have so ordained a place for us to step in and walk hand in hand with you to make the wrongs right again. God, we declare like the psalmist cry out, where does my help come from? How many people in our lives 
in this place, in our country, in our world, are crying out, where does my help come from? The Psalms tell us my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Do you know what is constituted in both heaven and earth? Us. We too are fashioned by the hands of the maker. So would you charge us, Jesus, which is just be more than a passioned sermon that wells us up on the inside and says, yeah, we should go do that. Would Jesus, would this sink deeper than that? Would it be more than just an emotional reaction or an intellectual assent? Would it be something that we sense deep down in our spirit and our very soul, which comes from you, that is you, Holy Spirit, calling us to take the gospel where we find ourselves present and to take it in its full breath, not ashamed of it, not hiding from it, but presenting it in full because it is the power of God unto salvation. Jesus, do this in us, we ask and pray. Amen.